At seven o'clock in the morning, some 2,000 miles east of Moscow, I arrived at the bus station in Gorno-Altaisk, capital of the Altai Republic. I had set off from Novosibirsk city by train the previous evening, reached Bisk railway station at 5.30 that morning, and from there taken a taxi to Gorno-Altaisk, as despite having recently acquired an airport, the Altai Republic has no railway station. There used to hang a large sign across the top of the bus station building, which read, Ulala Oirotura. Ulala was the name of the capital before it was renamed Oirotura in 1932 and finally became Gornaltaisk in 1948. The sign had reminded the traveller of the Oirot peoples, the Jangarian state and the great Oirot Khan of epic tale, thereby serving as a coordinate on the greater map of Altai's mythology, ancient history and expanse, prior to 1756 when it became part of Russia. Although this much-loved coordinate had recently been removed from the red brick wall, Gorno-Altaisk bus station is still Russia's gateway to the Altai mountains. I wandered up to the corner of the bus station ticket office where the taxi driver stood smoking and shaking hands with passers-by. With every step towards them, I felt the soles of my feet tread the tarmac more confidently, my chest breathe more freely, and my heart gladden in anticipation of mountain air filled with the aromas of sagebrush and the ching, ching, ching of bell mares. The taxi drivers tout for passengers, calling out the names of their destination, each one of Altai's ten administrative regions. Koshagach, Ustkoks, Chemal. I stand still for a moment, letting the associations of each place run through my mind. Koshagach, Altai's last outpost before the Mongolian border. There is an eerie feeling to Koshagach, as if one had arrived at the end of the world. Here eagles and black kites bunch up in flocks above low roofs, as if they had indeed stumbled against the edge of the sky. To any well-versed tourist, the Ustkoks region speaks of Mount Belucha, the highest point in the Altai Republic. Nicholas Rurik, Russian artist and mystic, who had been intent on finding the geographical location of the mythical kingdom of Shambhala, finally felt he had found it at Mount Belucha. In his 1920s travel journal, Heart of Asia, Rurik writes, On the 17th of August we beheld Belucha, so clear and reverberant, queen of the white snows, of whom even deserts whisper. When I hear the call Chamal, Instantly in my mind's eye, I see the pristine pine forests that run along the banks of the Katun River and think of the Altai artist who loved to paint them, Grigory Charles Gurkin. Charles Gurkin was executed outside his studio in Anos village in 1937, labelled an enemy of the people. Yet in both his painting and his prose, Gurkin reveals the soul of the Altai peoples. He writes... In the understanding of the Altai people, Altai is not simply mountains, forests, rivers and waterfalls, but spirit. For the nation that lives here, Altai is alive, fantastic in his many coloured garb of forests and grasses. The mists are his transparent thoughts which reach out to all distant corners of the world. The lakes are his eyes that gaze up into the cosmos, 
the waterfalls and rivers, his songs of life and the beauty of the land and mountains. Finally, I hear the call I have been waiting for. Angu dai. The taxi driver greets me, asking, going home? Iyedyanaram, I reply in the Altai language, going home. He chuckles, flicks his cigarette butt to the side, takes the rucksack from my shoulder and packs it into the boot of his car. For the next two and a half hours, we will journey southeast along Altai's main roadway, the Chuski Highway, marked on atlases as M52, otherwise known as the Road of Bones. As we travel, we follow the banks of the Katoon River, which in autumn is turbulent and emerald. Eventually, we cross the waters and continue in the direction of Angudai to the heart of the Republic. I gaze into the mellow gold of the larch and beech forests that flash by, contemplating the legacy of the artists Nicholas Rurik and Choros Gurkin. Both were exalting of Altai's nature, and both have played their part in shaping the image of the Altai Republic abroad. But it is Choros Gurkin's map we are tracing now, as we turn off the Chuski Highway and take a right turn into the Karakol Valley, where the artist made many portraits and sketches renowned for their intricate ethnographic detail. From the road, white Dyalamar prayer ribbons can be seen hanging from the lower branches of trees, and Thagil, stone altar tables, can be spotted on low hills. In adjacent meadows, giant hay bales mingle without ceremony among rock art sanctuaries, ancient burials and Bronze Age standing stones erected here by the ancient nomads. As the village yurts, the Aiels, come into view, dozens of white smoke trails rise up from hearths into the sky, pumping as regularly as a heartbeat. Again the words of Choros Gurkin come to mind. How I love you, he wrote, for having kept your secrets so solemnly, hidden under rocks and in burials all these centuries, and for having scattered your legends among the smoky Aiels. I watch for Uch and Mek, the sacred peaks of Terektinsky Ridge, to come into view. Here, the mountains are described reverently, sometimes as Khan Altai, sometimes more intimately as Keen Altai, Naval Altai. It was curious to me that my Altai friends used metaphors of the human body to describe the landscape. Rather than projecting the meaning of their homeland by comparing it with a notion as elusive as Shambhala, they bring it closer, making it more personal, private, cherished. Everyone here can identify with these simple notions, one's body, one's blood relatives, one's true love, one's Khan. Finally, we arrive. I pile out of the taxi, past the mighty wooden tying post, the chakir, that stands outside my friend's home, and walk into the aiel, stooping slightly to enter the low door, making an involuntary bow to the fire that burns at the centre of the earthen floor. I am warmly greeted by the family and invited to sit at the low round table to drink tea whilst we exchange news. I can see that the mother in the family has been busy. Fresh birch bark and a few short juniper twigs lie on a wooden platter on the far side of the fire, the spot they call the head of the fire, Otingbaji, where it is forbidden to stand or walk. 
the hard cheese kurut, is being smoked on a wooden rack above the fire. And high above that, a new leather bridle has been hung to strengthen the leather in the rising grey curls. As usual, we chat about news of the world beyond the village, my work in the city, the journey to the valley from Gorno Altaisk, updates on development projects along the Chuski Highway, and the artificial lake Sib Most Company has spent half a billion rubles constructing. And then we come to matters closer to home. Grandfather's failing eyesight, problems with wolves in the summer pastures, and news of close relatives, the responsibilities associated with a forthcoming wedding or funeral. On this occasion, as I have recently returned from London, I am asked how things are in foggy Albion, and there are gentle jokes about how I always return home to Altai and to their Aiel in the Caracol Valley. Humour aside, there is something magnetic about this busy Aiel that always pulls me back as if to home and family. I loved sitting with the family around their hearth, chatting on themes as lowly as water buckets, as eternal as homeland, as lofty as the Khans. I could never say exactly why I felt so comfortable. Perhaps it was the fire, the friends, the measured conversation. But I could not help wondering whether it was not in part that the spirit of Altai, of whom Choros Gurkin wrote, also enjoyed our gatherings and would sit with us beside the fire that he had this precious yurt tucked tightly under his arm. <laughs>